Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Bob Wintermute, and again, you're listening to the New Books and Military History podcast for the New Books Network. With the 75th anniversary of the Normandy landings, a recent flurry of monographs has opened up new appreciations of the planning and execution of Operations Neptune and Overlord. One might be forgiven for thinking there remains little new or original to be examined in the history of D-Day, but our guest, Stephen Allen Bork, not only challenges this fallacy, but also confronts the very foundation of the triumphalist narrative that has for so long defined American accounts of the European theater of operations. All of this is in his recent book, Beyond the Beach, The Allied War Against France, published by the Naval Institute Press in 2018. The combined bomber offensive, otherwise known as Operation Point Blank, was calculated to wear down both the Nazi strategic war effort and a trip the Luftwaffe's ability to interfere with landing operations in the opening month of the invasion of France. Lost to the historical record, however, is the tremendous civilian cost the Allied bombing campaign wreaked in France. Stephen Bork, Professor Emeritus at the School of Advanced Military Studies, United States Army Command General Staff College, offers a long overdue corrective to the story of the Allied campaign to liberate Western Europe. Steve, thanks for joining us today at New Books. Thanks, Bob. You know, before we discuss the book itself, I I, I have to ask, what prompted you to take on this project? I mean, you know the story of the Allied air campaign over France has been generally neglected. But was this the only factor at play, or were there other considerations? Yeah, no, it really wasn't. It was an interesting it was an interesting journey. I had just taken, at the time when I started, I was teaching out at California State University in Northridge. And we took students uh, every year. We'd take them back to France and or Germany and uh, and do the typical staff ride as a college course over there. And I, once we got rid of the students, a couple of my graduate students would hop in a car and we'd drive around looking at battlefields and just having a you know, a boys trip across the country, which was uh, very gratifying and very informative. On the way back, we stopped in uh, for the night in Metz. And for, for breakfast the ne- that morning, we're getting ready to go back to the airport. For breakfast, we go to the train station. I'm having my uh, tea and, uh, and, and sandwiches and look at the wall. And there's this big monument on the wall uh, to the soldiers Correction, to the rail workers who died during the bombings in the summer of 1944. And I'm looking at that, and I said, we did that. And I never put that all together. So I wandered over across the street to a bookstore and get a, got a book that came out in the 1990s about the bombing. And it was, it was a journalistic account, pretty sensational, but it, was pretty, it laid out a very long uh, complicated plan to bomb the French. I'm going, wow. So that's for the, really the start of it. I was already done all my other projects. I said, this is going to be interesting. And it's took, it took me off, off 10 years to follow the trail. 
you know, I'm, I'm looking again at the book, and the sources you introduce are incredible. You know, not only those official reports and planning documents you use, but, you know, more tellingly, just the personal narratives of the survivors. Yeah. You know, how, how, I mean, I would suggest that these oral recollections are really the foundation of the book, more so than the official record. Yeah. How did you get these? Well, the two things, there are two parts that I think are the foundation that, that makes this project differ from the typical Air Force histories or typical Air Force narratives, which we all see. Um, one of them is I go to the police reports, the prefects on the ground, and they're, they're doing the actual calculations of what is happening on the ground. The French literally plot every bomb that falls in, in most of these cities. You can tell where they fell what they did, they have a very robust passive defense uh, organization during the war. It's like civil defense, and it's all there. And so you just grab that, and that gives you a really a ground truth. So that's one piece of the pie right there. And some of those reports, by the way, are very moving, where you'll get the, uh, the, the prefect, sort of like the government official, writing a report and talking about – you know, this one great citizen who served this country for so many years, did all these great, wonderful things. And now now we get killed in a bombing attack and you don't see tears dripping onto the page. The other oh, thing, wow. the other thing is when you go to uh, at the memorial in Cannes, every starting, I'm not sure exactly when they started. I think it was about 1984, but every 10 years, they would put another call out for these kind of reports. Timonage, they call them in French. And they would put out another re uh, request. And so at the Memorial in Cannes is a very robust uh, collection of those kind of testimonies and documents. Now, most of them are in Normandy. So if you want to do things like I did up in the north, uh, like the Pas-de-Calais area, which was part of Operation Fortitude, uh, you literally go to the public libraries uh, the, the, or, or the departmental library, and they have some of those reports there. But they absolutely, they're, they're first-person accounts. Uh, you check them against the sources and the records, and it's uh, it's they're quite moving. Did you do any oral histories yourself for this project? Actually, I actually did only one because most of, most of these guys are. Uh, my French is not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but I did talk to one man up in. Uh, it's been a very happy afternoon with him up in Lille, and he was there when the the city of Lille was bombed a number of times as a child, and he was, we had a very very pleasant discussions about. Uh, what it was like to live there, what it was like to live around the corner from the, the uh, Gestapo headquarters and all kinds of fun things. You know that French casualties from the Allied bombing component of liberation, they told them, I'm reading here, like some 70,000 dead. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, there's collateral damage affecting civilians right. in the battle zone. We understand that. But this yeah. is this is something entirely different. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so... Yeah, so the, the casualty rates, and it's always difficult in some cases. Did the did the guy get killed by a bomb, or the guy get killed by a uh, you know a, a naval gunfire or an artillery piece? In in Normandy, in Normandy, the departments of Calvados, La Manche, and New York, they they have literally documented every death they possibly university students every death they possibly they can of why how the person died and everything else and, and what you know when and where and it's pretty extensive i've got several of these volumes on my shelf they um they're continuing to work but you know the number is very hesitant to use the number and that's that's one thing i think is important just up front because because 
at one point in time, you know, when the Germans invaded in 1940, there were between eight and 12 million Frenchmen and Belgians on the road running away from the from the from the uh, Germans. Remember, uh, Belgium was and northern France were occupied by the Germans in World War One, and they wanted nothing to do with that again. So in, in American numbers, we're talking between 80 and 120 million people in terms of scale. I mean, in terms of, that's just 10 percent. So. What that meant was by 1944, and some of them never go back because the Germans clean out the border areas along the along the um, the, uh, the new fortified zones. Um, so what it means is we really don't know exactly where people are. People are hiding in 1944. We don't know how many people are in that area. So it's really a guess that's in terms of numbers, and these are these are pretty accurate, but it still wrangles between 65 and 75 thousand. As a number, the other thing that we don't have a handle on at all, uh, and 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 the French are not helpful in this, are the number of slave laborers, forced laborers that were killed by bombings. So that's a, that's another number. I would add another ten thousand to that number, just, just because you, we can't document them. So it's a, sure. it's a massive. It it really is a massive. It's not. This is not collateral damage, and we'll get into some of this in a minute. This is, in some cases, is just the nature of the weapon. The nature of the equipment and uh, how inaccurate it is. You know, as historians consider the planning that went into the air war over France, more attention is being drawn to Shayef's role in authorizing strikes against targets. I, I'd like to ask two questions. I mean, first, how directly involved was General Dwight Eisenhower in the planning and execution of the campaign? And then, as a follow up, how does this compare with the standard interpretation? that Eisenhower has of being a morally conscientious commander who sought to limit civilian casualties. Yeah, that's a, that's an interest. That's a really interesting because that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, Eisenhower had suffered in North Africa and Italy by not being able to get control of the bombers. Uh, he it's you know some cases he has to go back to Marshall uh, when the Germans are counterattacking in Anzio and say hey I need I need I need bombers over here you know let me use them. Um, so he when he took command uh, starting right away and when he arrives in February and moving into March he forces the he forces the decision he was going to resign over it I think you know uh, to use that air those air, air those heavy bombers. Right. He's going. I don't think he personally. I don't think he cared how they were used as long as they were supporting the ground invasion. Right. That was, he wanted those things to be long range artillery. I don't use the word strategic bomber in my book very much. They're heavy bombers and Eisenhower is using them as heavy artillery. Um, that, so now he, he's given a series of plans. <coughs> Excuse me series of plans to use, the transportation plan being one of them, of course, that Zuckerman, uh, Solly Zuckerman, who is uh, Tedder's science guy, he um, throws that at him. And and what's interesting is Zuckerman is he's a biologist. I mean, he's not a real scientist. He's a, he's a scientist, but not a, not a you know, statistical or, or analytical guy. He, he does biology. So he's the guy guiding this thing. And he believes, of course, that these uh, bombers will do all those great and wonderful things. Fact of the matter, of course, is when you unleash your bombs on on rail stations where people work, 
and live next to where they work, you're going to kill a lot of these guys. And Eisenhower is determined to go forward with the t- a transportation plan. And as long as he has consensus from most of his key people, I'm talking about Lehigh Mallory and Tedder and uh, Montgomery, of course, uh, he's going to do that. So he, he, at one point in time, the guy who stands up for civilian casualties is interestingly enough, Winston Churchill. Churchill's the guy that's trying to talk Eisenhower out of the uh, transportation plan, which I found just He's to be looking, fascinating. Yeah, Churchill's looking forward to post-war relations. Though, exactly. Exactly. Eisenhower is only and it's a it's a real handicap. And the more I work with these things, the more you realize it. They are so focused on the first two weeks ashore on the beaches that they let ever they are ready to run an attrition campaign against those those uh, transportation targets against those uh, rail uh, centers. I mean, an attrition campaign. This isn't a plan. This is just we're going to start at one end and we're going to wipe out all the rail yards from one end of France to the other in Belgium. But it's not a plan. A plan means you're thinking about cause and effect, you know, courses of action. No, they're just going to, they're, they're just, they have a long list and they just start going down the list. So it's, and Eisenhower's determined to make that happen. Um, there are a couple other cases where the same thing takes place. For example, in the bombing of the towns behind the beaches, he's adamant it's going to happen. So Eisenhower, Eisenhower is he is he's he's an enigma. He is an interesting guy, and I don't think we've broken the code on on Eisenhower yet. I'm more and more I look at it. You know, you mentioned Churchill as an outlier. I have to ask: Were there any other outliers in the Allied command? You know, people who sought to restrict or limit or you know at least strive for some proportionality. Yeah, all, all the Air Force attacks. guys. All the Air Force guys. All the Air Interesting. Force Interesting. Harris wants nothing to do with it. Harris wants absolutely nothing to do with bombing these targets. Spatz wants absolutely nothing to do with doing the bombing. When I talk to Air Force people, the first thing I have to tell them is, this: you know, in most cases, this is not your problem. You were ordered to do it, literally told in some cases to sit down and shut up, you know, row. And and this is this is definitely that kind of problem. He is not. Uh, Spatz wants nothing to do about it. He writes in his diary, uh, comes out one day that this our darn thing is going to fail. And but I'm not going to get blamed. I'm going to go along with it. I mean, they don't think the invasion. The true believers, air power guys, they think you take the war to the enemy and you let you don't worry about it. What's taking place in France? So it's an interesting. The air guys are the most adamant opponents of doing the bombing. But their their opposition is based on doctrinal disagreements rather than morality or right. ethics. No, I they I think actually too. I think they understand the morality. I do. I, I think they understand okay. the morality. I think so. To hear they that, know. You hear that about Bomber Harris? That's kind of a stretch. But yeah, well, but Bomber Bomber Harris has no problem killing Germans. I mean, neither does Spatz. The problem is they are aware that what ha- what they're doing when they're going over France, and that's yeah. the real problem. They have no problem at all killing Germans. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced the bombing of Dresden takes place really because Spatz didn't want to give up his aircraft to send him to the Pacific Theater, you know, the one, at the end of the war. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, they, they, they believe they can kill all the Germans they want to. Um, they don't. They, they realize that killing friendly civilians is going to be a problem. And, you know, we can talk about friendly civilians later. That's a that's kind of fuzzy. But, but, but yeah, they don't want to do it. And it's and I think it's morality as much as anything else. You know, it can be, and you know, and it has been argued that liberation wouldn't have been possible 
without this extensive bombing that we're talking about. You know, the railroad yards, the bridges, the munition plants. Does this explanation and the evidence that is offered in support of it pass the proportionality test that I implied earlier? Yeah, no, I think you're I think that's exactly the invasion, the invasion. The, the bombing is critical to the invasion. And there's some things they do in terms of bombing that make great sense. Um, dropping the bridges. I mean, dropping the bridges over the, the Seine and Loire River. Those are they're just smart bombing moves. I mean, you, you drop the bridges. They can't get across. And so and it's difficult to get across. So, and then you keep them, you know, once you drop the bridges, you keep them under constant surveillance and fighter attack and everything. That that's no doubt about that. The bombing of um, the bombing of interesting to cross both sites up in the north and across that whole area. Um, those delay the launches of the V uh, V one rockets for for a long time. They those were going to go off in probably early forty four, uh, if not forty three. But the bombing of those, which is a whole topic not really covered in most places, that uh, that delayed that and allowed troops to get ashore and none of those rockets were hitting, you know, the ports. Um, the one that I, the, the, the thing where I'm wrestling with and I've wrestled with in the book and the evidence is the methodology they use for the transportation targets that rail centers, because you didn't have to take them all out the way they did. So, you know, again, it's not a plan. That was just a list, which is not exactly the same thing. Um, that one, and of course, we can talk later on about the bombing of the towns behind behind the things, which I think is absolutely wrong. Well, what were the high priority targets for the Allied bomber forces before uh, June 1944? And what happens? How do they shift afterwards? Yeah, number one bomb and number one bombing target uh, at all times are the V1 and V2 launcher sites supply things. That's number one all the time. Uh, Churchill, Eisenhower, uh, Eisenhower, and Tedder, and Churchill all agree that we got to keep those things suppressed. So that's always the beginning, right? From and, the beginning. and yet, but and yet, you know, that's you know, Operation Crossbow always seems to fade into the background. I mean, it's a primary focus, but it's always talked about third, fourth, or even yeah. just you know, barely mentioned. Yeah, in 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 the public discourse, in the public discourse, right. not in not in the report, not in the meetings. The meetings were Eisenhower or Tedder. Or, uh, or Lehigh Mallory, or get all the commanders together. Crossbow is always near the top of the page. It's always, always at near the top. Crossbow is an absolute priority all the time. So that why this why this historical disordering? Because it's not sexy. I, I don't know. I guess <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know. You know, it's not. It's uh, you know, it doesn't have troops. You know, that, that's why I call it the book Beyond the Beach. Yeah. <clears throat> if, if you can't see it, it's probably not happening. Well, it is happening, and and so these towns and they're small towns. They're small raids. Some cases they're very bloody raids too, because these things are protected by anti-air stuff, and uh, they're bloody raids. But that keeps going. So, so crossbow the no ball targets, as they call them. Those things are always going to be there, um, right? I mean, right to the end until they till they sweep across Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, for for the bombings themselves, factories are get are pretty important early on too. You know, if France goes. Yeah, it's kind of funny. France is the uh, on the eve of the war, the number one or two producer of just about all weapons in Europe. I think not counting the Russians. Uh, and yet, if you, you pick up uh, typical guides of uh, armament manufacturing, they don't even mention the French. I've got the the uh, Oxford Companion to uh, World War II here, and it looks at production figures. And they don't even list the French. 
The French are producing an incredible amount of artillery, aircraft, tanks. Uh, before the they're gearing up with quality equipment, and uh, and oh by the way, Renault and and uh, other the auto manufacturers, as soon as as soon as the Germans are in place, they're already negotiating with them to supply trucks to the Germans. Yeah. So there's a massive factory. I mean, they're engine aircraft designers. There's a massive. Uh, industrial base that's out there starting to support the uh, support the Germans, and so those targets, the rail railroads, you know, uh, trains, all that stuff. Lil produces a lot of that stuff. That's all being being uh, attacked before Eisenhower gets in place. After he gets in place, uh, the, the Air Force, of course, has time to start going after uh, uh, you know clearing the skies of the Luftwaffe, you know, big week of, uh, those kind of events. Yeah. And then they and then they start to shift uh, to the the thing that will cut will be the rail yards, the transportation yards. And again, this is why they call it a transportation plan. And and I'm more and more curling when I hear the, the word plan, because it wasn't really. It was very much a, a, a list of going from one target to the other to the other. And they actually list next to the targets on the target list how many civilians they think will die, which is pretty gruesome. Mm. You know, you raise the issue of French cooperation, which I think is an excellent point that, you know, so rarely do we, we see considered. And I, I always it I always raises for me the question, you know, just how do we view occupied France? How how do we consider occupied France as a, you know, really a nation that is under, you know, Nazi domination and control? As to what degree are they willfully participating? And I, I know that that's a that's a fuzzy question. It's a gray area yeah. question, but it matters when we're talking about bombing. That's right. It's a great question. And you know, on the back of the book, I, uh, Robert Paxton is uh, one of the people who endorsed the back of the book, and uh, Pax, Paxton is the dean of that whole uh, genre. I mean, he he yes. blows the lid off of all that for the French. And the reality is, and a whole lot of other books have written on it too from pretty smart people. Um, the reality is. French are in a difficult situation. It's a, you know, they, they still dearly remember, um, uh, in a world war one, 1.3 million French soldiers, uh, perish. They remember that's there. They, that is right in the front. Pétain is a God to many. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to take care of them. They don't want to go through it before again, uh, in 1940. And what you have really, uh, for the first couple of years of the war, is uh, a, a happy France going along supporting the Germans? It's the first couple of years of the war. I'm I'm struck at how often I see uh, references to this. Uh, how how everybody's getting along fine after the end of '42, uh, after after uh, Torch takes place, after the Americans are in the war, uh, getting into '43, if they start picking up the combined bomber offensive, which is now hitting more targets in France, uh, after the Germans start pulling troops out of the Eastern front and rotating in with the good Germans that are on the Western front. Eventually you start to see the trend of, and of course the forced labor of the, of young men. As you start to see that you start to see a, a, the pendulum start to sh- shift the other way. Um, you know, one of the jokes is that uh, if the Germans come on through the, 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 you know, the French will have German flags. If the Americans come on through the American flags out there and, and you know, th- they're living in a really difficult situation that most Americans can't even fathom. Um, it's truly a civil war kind of environment. And then you imagine there are no, because of the prisoners of war and the people in hiding, there are no men. 
So think about it. The women, if you're an 18-year-old girl in 1940, there are no French men around. And you've got these German troops walking around and, you know, it, there are all kinds of things happen. And it's hard for us sure. to understand that. But there's no doubt, go back to the, the basis of the question, I think, there's no doubt that especially the first few years of the war, uh, French business profited greatly off the war. Uh, they're the ones, you know, we all talk about all these bunkers built by Organization Tote, uh, the, the, the V1 sites and the bunkers on the coast. Those are built by French co- subcontractors using forced labor in many cases or re- their own labor. Um, they don't have those records. You can't get those records. You know, they're there. They're, they don't want to talk about that after the war. They don't want to talk about, uh, they don't want to talk about the French auto workers who are making trucks for the Germans, uh, they're they're getting paid and they're they're living a nice life. Certainly until we get into 1943. So the first few years of the war, before it all starts to come home and bite, uh, France is a willing accomplice. And I would I would argue um, that if Hitler had actually signed a true treaty with France, rather than just this this uh, ceasefire that essentially they did, they tried a, tr- a true uh, treaty with France. Then uh, France would have been fighting, you know, right along that the, the Germans. We probably never would have got ashore. So it would have transformed the idea of what the, you know, the, the FFI were. Oh yeah, right. Well, if it could, even, yeah. if it even could have got off the ground. And again, I always point out, you know, it's, it's elements of the Char- elements of the Charlemagne division that are doing the defense of uh, of the Reichstag in the last week of the war. You know, the French are they're right in this thing. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm convinced uh, the whole if Hitler, I hate to blame Hitler for everything. But had Hitler actually signed a peace treaty, I think the French would have been fighting right along with him. Well, let's turn to Normandy itself. How successful were the Allied air attacks on the defensive works throughout the landing zones? Ha! Interesting. I'm working on the, the my paper for the 75th conference in Portsmouth right now, cleaning that chapter up. They were <laughs> they were they were extremely ineffective. Well, back up. The Ninth Air Force was brilliant. Ninth Air Force, who provided the fire support on Utah Beach, was brilliant. They they came in low, tight, took out targets. They were very effective. Uh, the Eighth Air Force, uh, not so much. Uh, Bomber Command, not so much. They 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 were hit, almost hitting their own troops in some cases, their own parachutists and uh, pathfinders. Um, but the Eighth Air Force is a fascinating story, and uh, and I've been researching this more since I finished the book. You know that every historian has ever written about D Day. Excuse me. Every he's written about D-Day talks about the uh, ineffectiveness of the air air bombings. They all and everybody says it. They, you know, they might as well stayed at home. We didn't need it because they all bomb later. And what happens is everybody is concerned about fratricide. You know, the Air Force guys have come to grips with the fact that they're uh, that that they they got a pretty inaccurate weapon there. I mean, they get all the pictures of of uh, what what they're hitting and not hitting in France. And, and Germany, they've got uh, the French free French are, are sending letters to Eisenhower saying, "Please stop the bombing. You're killing our people." I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing taking place. So they're very sensitive to fratricide. And now the army guys who really don't have a good handle on what the air guys can and cannot do. Now the army guys want them to provide uh, long range artillery on the landings. They they have no capability to do this really. They got a radar system called H two X. It's a navigation radar. It's not a targeting radar. Doolittle thinks he's practicing up in the Fortitude area up in Calais. He thinks he can get pretty close. 
he thinks he can do it, get pretty close, don't mess anything up, and, and don't don't try to land too early. He thinks he can get there. And by the way, the, the, it's written in a joint fire plan that Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, uh, proponents all sign, right? So they, they know that they're supposed to, and I use the term very uh, uh, deliberately, neutralize the targets on those beaches. Neutralize the targets on the beaches. Uh, neutralize, of course, for military term, essentially means put it out of action for a while. And if they put it out of those those things out of action for an hour, well, the, everybody's on the beach, good to go. Well, on the night of June fifth, and and do little things he can do it. Eighth Air Force, he said, we're ready. He's grounded all of his his H two X radars uh, aircraft a couple days ahead of time. He's got them all ready to go. He says he can do it. Planners, and I'm still tracking it down. I've got I've got a couple of good uh, memos of what took place. Planners inside uh, the Eighth Air Force decided to delay. So when the H two X comes up on its target, it's sort of a marker. It tells it when the, when the when the when the when the navigator tells the bombardier to go ahead and drop the bombs. The, the planners decide to put an extra safety window on that. By between five and 30 seconds, depending on the target. So what it means, of course, is when they're coming on up and they see the target, if it's at 10 seconds and they're flying at about 100 miles an hour, so they're supposed to count to 10 before they bomb. What that means, of course, is all those bombs tumble uh, into the the rear behind the German lines onto French targets in many cases. Um, and it, 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 Omaha Beach is, uh, you know, the most egregious. That uh, Widerstein Nest 62 up there is the most egregious example because because they, that fire they, they weren't even touched. They weren't even touched, and the artillery Ford observer had command was able to call in all the fires from his battalion on the landing troops. Mm-hmm. It's nutty. Um, so you go tracing this thing down. Okay, so the question: Who makes the decision? Well, in the official history. In the official history, it says that uh, Eisenhower and uh, and uh, AEAF, you know, Lee Mallory approved it. No chance. There's no chance whatsoever they approve that change. Eisenhower never, ever makes a snap decision like that without contacting the other service. So if he thought that was a good idea, he would. If, if the planners pitched it to Eisenhower, and Eisenhower thought it was a good idea. He would have, or was questioned it one way or the other. He would have got Bradley and Montgomery into the room together to talk about it, or at least their designated representatives. That does not happen. I've got all of the air minutes, all of the commanders' minutes. That simply does not happen. Somebody in the Eighth Air Force, and I've got a memo that says they informed them. Sort of a memo, sort of that says we made this decision, and then we sent a note up to. Uh, higher headquarters, or we talk to other staff officers. But the memo said that the, the official history says Eisenhower approved the change. Not true. So I'm going, so I've on, been on a quest uh, to find out who made that decision. And what's funny is that why I'm 75 years after the event. I mean, I Bradley's Bradley screams about it in his own, uh, in his own memoirs. I mean, who made the decision? How did they get away with it? It's like it's been totally covered up. What it means, of course, is a lot of those crosses from the 16th Infantry Regiment that are up there in that uh, cemetery were caused by the guys in the Air Force who made that overcautious decision. The ground guys wanted it neutralized. They didn't want them scared. 
And that, that, the, the official history, written, by the way, by the Ninth Air Force, that chapter in the official history on the landings is written by the Ninth Air Force's historical officer who's disappeared from the world. Well, that's interesting. Again, as I, as I, as I just said before, I was you know, my next question was going to be, you know, was this a question of doctrine? Was it a question of yeah. technology? Well, what we're seeing here is, you know, it's both. I mean, yeah, technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. the technology you know, is weak. Doctrine. Yeah, the technology is weak and Doolittle and the Air Force guys know that. But they're trying to do the right thing for the ground guys. They're trying to do the right thing for the ground guys. But somebody, I mean, I don't know if Doolittle himself ever knew that change took place. I, I'm still working. But whoever did it, I mean, they, 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 they ensured that across, not just in, you know, not just in Omaha. I mean, you know, Gold Sword, Juno, Juno Beach, the Canadians had tough fights on positions that should have been hit. Was there an alternative? I mean, obviously, you know, had they removed the ten second or you know, yeah, that yeah, that's five good. five to thirty second delay, there there been a difference. But I'm talking about in terms of you know employing heavy bombers in the first place. Yeah, well, or medium bombers. Well, they should have even been there. Yeah, that's a good. The, the Air Force guys say they shouldn't have been there at all. That's the Air Force argument. But Eisenhower, you know, they the Air guys, <coughs> excuse me, the Air guys have been selling a bill of goods to the ground guys for years, you know, and uh, it's yeah. time to, time to cash the check. Eisenhower wanted to see him in action. And, you know, they, he saw him in action. He's, I mean, they used him. Their bombers got involved in, in those Italian fights that were very effective. So he knows that what they can do. The thing that I'm always fascinated about is the – is again, and you got to stand back for a minute because it's easy to be critical. These are young, young men. Most of them are not professionals. Uh, the planners are not professionals. The, the handful of guys at the senior levels, of course, are all Leavenworth grads and War College grads. But the people doing the grunt work – I mean, they're 25-year-old, 27-year-old kids. People flying the airplanes are 23, 24. I mean, it's, this is a young person's sport. And the technology and the doctrine uh, is not quite matching what they want. They know what they want to do with airplanes, and they can't quite get there yet. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting mesh. I mean, so they're tr everybody's trying to do the right thing. I, from a planner's point of view, uh, look at, of course, like you bring out, what were the alternative courses of action? What were the other methodologies? And they're really in such a hurry to get it done that they're not thinking about some of the other ways of bombing. You know, one of the cases they example, for, uh, one of the things they keep doing is bombing the subpens. I mean, the subpen, they just, we're going to bomb, we're going to bomb. It does nothing. It destroys all the land around the subpens. You ever get a chance to see, go visit some, they're amazing. And everything around is destroyed. Subpens are just cranking away, doing their thing. Uh, they had another bombing. Let's put another layer of concrete on the top. I mean, that just goes on. Um, and when the right answer would have been interdiction right off the coast, uh, much more effective than bombing subpens. There's not a lot of alternatives. You know, there's a lot of time they really aren't. I, I was brought up in the military to do course of action analysis, you know, option A, option B. There's not very much of that as I'm seeing. Once Cossack, uh, Fred Morgan, in 43 kind of lays that thing out other than adding a little extra extra another extra beach and some airborne there's not a lot of changes interesting because i was going to argue too i mean you know i'm reading peter caddick adams's book now on yeah. on normandy you know yeah. the tremendous detail and you know he's pointing out and i don't want to you know true into your interview oh, no, yeah. for somebody else but you know he points out too that a lot of this planning is taking place really just up in the if you can call it planning Despite Cossack being in place in 43, a lot of this stuff is only happening after February. Right. Yeah. 
Oh, this is moving. Yeah, no, this is a fast moving animal. Um, it's in, you know, it's in April when the joint fire plan is first pulled out, you know, so we're talking 60 days out. They're starting to talk about this and it only gets finalized about, you know, about a month later. So it's, 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 yeah, it, yeah I'm going to have to grab that one off the shelf, I guess. Well, let's turn to the, uh, the other side of the beaches, Con, you know, then the post actions at Avranche, on low, uh, the other Norman cities in June and early July 44. This brings us up to Operation Cobra. You know, again, it's what's taking place here, flawed doctrine or lack of doctrine or poor decision-making by ground commanders that creates these circumstances of high civilian casualties in the attacks on the towns. Well, the towns, uh, as you know, attacking the towns, I, I, I flat out think this is a war crime. I mean, I just flat out think it's a war crime. Uh, the Geneva Hague Conventions do not allow you to bomb targets in case the Germans are going to be there, you know, it's, I've got a, my next question was exactly that. It was yeah. this a willful violation yes. or an accidental violation. They are so desperate to keep Rommel's and, you know, Montgomery, as you know, goes to bed at night with a picture of Rommel on above his bed. Um, yeah. He, he is, they are obsessed with keeping the German armor away. And because most of these towns are built, and I've been to all of them. Uh, they're built in, uh, you know, at the, the down by the river, that little, little rivers, large stream, You've got a bridge going over it. You got a little water mill. All the farmers come down there and do their their milling. Have done it for centuries. The countryside is wide open because uh, that's where all the all the you know cows and the, and the farming takes place. And so it's designed as a choke point. I mean, it, it's a market town. They're all designed as choke points, and they are they're determined, uh, but they're determined to take to destroy these things. And by the way, the air force is screaming back, "We don't want to do this." Um, Destroy these towns and uh, uh, to block the Germans from coming through, and it's a it it's a it's a it's a you know it is a war crime. I mean, just don't do that kind of stuff, and we do it. And and there, and the the problem is they're so focused on beating the, these, these attacks, they aren't uh, they're determined to do it. I got an interesting letter the other day. You know, my book came out in French uh, two months ago. I got a letter. I talk about the town of Lisieux. It's one of those towns. And I mentioned, and I mentioned the uh, bombing of a, a, the family a guy, a guy named Corneau, and Corneau was one of the inventors of the helicopter, the French inventor. And and I actually got a letter from uh, his grandson, and his grandson clarified the, how many, like eleven people in the family killed by the bombings in Lisieux. And what he said was even more moving because you know the everybody wanted to drop leaflets, and the leaflets would say, you know, your towns, the, the rail yards are going to be attacked. The Carnot family lived near the rail yard. They moved away from the rail yard to, to, to one of the other relatives' houses downtown. That that house is the one that was destroyed. The town, the one near the rail yard, wasn't touched. Oh, oh it, it's it's heart wrenching when you when you when you, re, you get this stuff. Yeah, so it's not doc. There's no doctrine in the U.S. Army or Air Force in 1944 that says it's a good idea to bomb villages. Uh, to interdict villages by destroying them ahead of time. That's that's just not there. I mean, I, I I'm afraid to ask. I mean, but was there any you know, any repercussions for the commanders who authorized or ordered no, this? No, no, no. That, the guy, the guy's name is Montgomery. Bernard yeah. Montgomery. He he's the one. Yeah. He he's in fact at one point there was a quite there was a, there were debates where the Air Force is trying to talk get out of it. 
and they're really getting out of it. And Monty hears words about that, and he gets hold of Lehigh Mallory. Are you changing this plan? And Lehigh Mallory, who's, a, who's supporting Monty 100%, says, nope, we're going through with it, and, and shuts everybody down because they did not want to do this. And they're, some of these towns are pretty small, and they like they just wipe, you know, they're just gone. They're just gone. Unbelievable. You know, in the end, you know, I guess the, the, the end question about Normandy, you know, was this airport plan successful? You know, and, and, and answering that, I, I got to wonder, too, can we balance, can we even attempt to balance the human toll against the prospect of a successful German counterstroke against the beaches yeah. or success in the drive on Avranche in, in late July? Yeah, you know, again, it's 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 they were trying to do they had they had unlimited firepower. Yeah, they had unlimited firepower and Eisenhower was determined to use it all. And that's the thing when you rather than again, it's the question becomes as you look at that's why I broke it down by the in the chapters. So these are discrete operations. These are discrete lines of effort that are being done for certain purposes. And, you know, most of them were pretty legitimate. I mean, taking out airfields and, you know, and, and submarine pens, those are pretty legitimate. When you start talking about, about going after the human population, could you imagine if, in, if we did that in some place like Afghanistan today, started destroying Afghan villages one by one because the Taliban might move through? I mean, you know, holy moly. Well, I, I also shudder to mention that there are, <laughs> try not to get too political, but, there are those people who would advocate such a thing. Oh, I know. My, my mind shudders to think of that. <clears throat> oh, I know. I know, but you know, the problem is these guys, so one of the guys I talk about is a guy that actually found his uh, his grave, P.J. Uh, Corbett. Anyway, Cordier, P.J. Cordier. He, and he, he's, he's, he's in that town, Lisieux, also. And he wakes up uh, as at seven years old, not even eight years old yet, wakes up, uh, you know, with his, his leg cut off and bleeding mass, his mother's dead. I mean, it's it's horrific. He lives till 1992. So think about as he's growing up legless in uh, in th- th- this area. Think about what what he's feeling. You know, as he watches Americans. And I remember as a kid coming by. You know, in the old days, people go, oh, "The French don't like us. They don't appreciate what we did." Could you imagine what it's what it's like to go? You know, your family uh, took these guys out. One one of my other a guy I quote a lot in my book. He's become a good friend of mine. His 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 father was uh, uh, they're coming back from a uh, picking up the the uh, the mother at the train station. They're all walking. There's a, a, a 16 year old girl. There's a young kid and there are two boys. Um, they're all going home. The two boys run along ahead. And then the first American bombing mission of the war shows up over Rouen. The two boys survive. Uh, the re- other four are all killed. And I tell the story about how. He goes, the, the, the uncle uh, goes back with and tries to find where everybody is and horrible scenes inside of uh, morgues and the, and the hospitals. And, you know, again, this guy, my friend Paul, his father just died, just died. He lived with that for all. He didn't even tell him about it. He was so ashamed of it. Didn't even tell him about it until a few years ago. I mean, what an emotional, gut-wrenching thing. And we don't, we, you know, we have real trouble dealing with that in the United States because we don't appreciate it. Let's turn it upside down. What was the German perspective? Yeah, the Germans. Um, German, um, yeah. This, this wanton allied <laughs> force. Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was certainly causing them difficulties getting places. There's no question about it. They were pretty good 
If they wanted to put troops on the ground, they could get them there. They did a pretty good job of getting them there, uh, all things considered. They slowed the, they slowed the traffic. There's no question. It was slow. Uh, so it definitely slowed it. Um, and, and the Germans, the ones they hated, they hated the, the fighter bombers. They just hated the fighter bombers. The, the abos. The yeah. abos. They're everywhere. They hated those things. They could work their way around the rail yards pretty, pretty interestingly. And, you know, you had a lot of rail workers, both French and German, that were making that stuff happen. Uh, so it was they were able to get around that stuff pretty well. Um, if they caught out in the open, then the weather's good. Uh, they were they were sitting ducks. So it's sure it's interesting. What I find is even more interesting about the plan, uh, this whole thing, is so we talk about the breakout. You know, we end up having to stand up this thing called the Red Ball Express. Yeah, yeah. we have to do that because we weren't smart enough to figure out which rail lines to keep open. You know. We weren't smart enough to figure, oh, and they were talking, there were some guys talking about, you know, we really don't want to destroy them all. So when we're starting to move up towards the border, up to the border, we can't, we have no rail, no, the, the trains aren't there, the repair lines aren't there, the tracks aren't there, and we can't get them up there. So we put these up jerry cans and deuce and a halfs. I mean, about as inefficient a way of doing stuff as you could ever imagine. And, and again, where was the planning that said, when we take out these rail yards, we need to leave certain ones open for our own use. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's that's part of a plan. It's part of as Or to even return. where are the engineers that are needed to rebuild yeah. these, these oh, yeah. rail yards so quickly yeah. after they've been reoccupied. Yeah, exactly. And if you go to France today, I've hunted around enough rail yards. A couple of them look pretty good, but you look at the pictures of them back in their glory days, they're 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 disasters. It, lot, most of them have not been completely rebuilt and pretty pretty ugly. Well, that's another dimension as well of all this. We're talking about the human cost. It's also the artistic and the architectural. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Cost. Oh, that's right. You know, the Notre Dame just burns a little while ago, of course. Uh, I, I said, you know, nothing to fear. There's no country in the world that can rebuild a church better than France. I mean, they, <laughs> they we destroyed a bunch of them. Now, Cannes is a you know great example of churches just destroyed in, in uh, by the bombing. And, I, you know, I always thought, St. Lowe, same thing. You know, I always thought St. Lowe was bombed. I thought the disaster. I've seen pictures of, of the St. Lowe um, disaster, you know, damage for years. Oh yeah, before. it looks like Dresden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I never thought much about it. I I thought that was done in July when we get ready to do the breakout during the Battle of St. Lowe. I had no idea it was done on June sixth. No idea at all. And it's amazing. Um, so these these churches and and they're and interesting enough. The, so when you look at the air plans, the ones that are given down to the down to the air, to the air crews, the air units, um, they're very precise about flight patterns. So where are you going to take off? Where are you going to start loggering in the air as you form up? What route are you going to take to the target? You know, very, very precise. The target's on the ground. It's just a sketch map and a circle. And when you look at, yeah, and when you look, you look at the con, the sketch map and the circle, one of them is an ancient abbey that's been there from William the Conqueror. You know, time. You know, there's another ancient art, art, basilica over here, and then you know, it's just it's nuts. I mean, there's really no, there's really no serious that I have seen so far analysis of the of the damage of, of anticipating the damage to uh, these these uh, these treasures. You know, it's sort of like the the Monte Cassino bombing. You know, many yeah. times over. What was the French government in exile's position uh, on the bombing campaign? Uh, they they were trying they were trying to keep it lighter than it was. Of course, there's, 
there's often a rumor that uh, that de Gaulle approves the bombing. It's, I've heard that numbers of times with people, and that's not correct. Um, in the could, de Gaulle's not brought into any of the planning, you know, of any series of nature. Uh, Pierre Koenig is Eisenhower's uh, de Gaulle's representative on Eisenhower's staff, and he's he's coordinating the free French in the in the country, French force of the interior. He's coordinating French troops that are working with the Allies. Um, he's he Tedder and Smith, Beetle Smith, of course, the chief of staff, and uh, and Arthur Tedder, the deputy commander. They go to see Koenig and talk about the, talk about this transportation, the bombings, everything else. And Koenig, who by the way is the victor of Bir Hakim, uh, big you know from the French, a very important fight against the, against Rommel. His attitude is sort of well, if you're in France, you're going to die anyway, so go ahead. You know, it's just part of war. I can't remember if it's Tedder, Tedder or uh, or Smith walk out and say that's the most bloodthirsty man I've ever met. So they, the French were pretty happy. They were they, they had no no qualms at all. Free French. Mm. Now the guys after the war, the guys inside the country did. The guys inside the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. Well, that's that's the that's the sticky piece, you know. But I think that's the that's the real rub here. And the question I'm always asked is why didn't why weren't the French screaming about this right away? after the war. I mean, why weren't they yelling? And it goes back to the original comments about France is in a civil war. So you've got Jews coming back from concentration camps. They can't get into their old homes because somebody else is living there. You've got prisoners of war coming back from prisoner of camps who are accused of collaborating with the Germans and not fighting hard enough. You've got women across France, 200,000 German babies, I think is the number, uh, uh, babies fathered by German soldiers. The Germans are paying child support into the 60s. I mean, uh, people who collaborated at the beginning uh, didn't collaborate at the end. The police uh, who out there are fighting the resistance fighters, the communists who feel they're getting robbed from power because they did most of the fighting. It goes on and on and on. Uh, then re- the idea of rebuilding, how are we going to rebuild, what are we going to rebuild? Oh, it's, oh, by the way, it's now the Cold War. And now we get to worry about the Russians. I mean, it's such a complex environment. Neighbors are turning, you know, the, the German, the French police are the ones that round up all the Germ, all the French Jews. It's not the Gestapo. And the Jews are fingered by the by their neighbors. So it's an extremely difficult, distrustful, uh, you know, it's not gay Paris, which is what Americans obliviously rolling on through uh, uh, France about. So it's a really, you know, de Gaulle is alleged to have made the comment when he kicks us out of NATO, uh, France out of NATO in uh, 60, 66, 67, I think. When he does that, he says, we know that you uh, Americans will defend France to the last dead Frenchman. I'm not sure from the government's point of view, but I sense in many conversations with Frenchmen and French families that there was a degree, a great degree of animosity in those regions that were hit by American and British bombers. Great degree well, of you know- animosity. You know, you raised that point before about, you know, the, the, the old story of the angry Frenchman or the ugly yeah. American. It all comes back to the bombing. Yeah. If you stop to think about it, why wouldn't you be angry? Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like, you know, you're living in a neighborhood and on one side of your house is a drug cartel and they're, you know, doing sex trafficking and drugs and all kinds of stuff like that. So the police, the SWAT team comes through, through your house to go next door. And in the process of breaking into your house to break into the house next door, they, you know, wipe out your family. How do you feel about the police? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting story. And I, I got to tell you every, 
literally every chapter is a separate book. It really is a separate book. I mean, the detail, the scale of these things, it could easily be a separate book. It's it's a, oh, it's yeah. amazing. You know, at the end, it comes down to what have we learned or what should we have learned from the bombing war over France and how the story affects the validationalist narratives that we've created yes. about World War II. Yeah, we saw that. I How should that. we reevaluate this? Yeah, you saw. You saw. I make a big deal about narrative at the beginning of the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think that the narrative is just is the inclusion. I mean, that's the. It, it's a hard book for Americans to write um, because you got to go there and you, know, you got to go into those archives. You got to go get those reports, and it's it's difficult to do it. But the French were willing participants. I mean, a lot of good materials coming out now on the French resistance. Strong arguments. That had this, the resistance, the free French force of the interior, then uh, armed better, they would have been even more effective. Uh, you know, the, Patton's right flank is protected by by free French units. So that's not usually common knowledge. I mean, it's those kind of things. I think are it's include. I did not write this as victims' history. I wrote it as, no, an, ex- as, a, as an explanation to what happened. And I think it just needs to be included in the concept of war and, and total war in Europe. And it's and they're all the same. How can you write a war about actions in Afghanistan or in in uh, Iraq in the last few years without talking about the civilian component? You have to, and that's the same thing. The, I think the French have been cut out, certainly by by the English speakers. The French have been cut out of the war, and they weren't just just doorstops. They were active participants in all aspects of this thing. Well, the Army Air Forces, of course, used the Second World War and Europe, European campaign in particular, to justify its future independent status, yep. you know, as a coeval branch yep. of the military. Yep. You know, talk about master narratives. Yeah, exactly. Narratives. To what extent does this part of the air war, the bombing war over France, feature into that narrative? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't, right? I mean, this war, think about it. It really doesn't. It really is, a, you know, they don't talk about, I mean, they don't talk about these kind of missions. They talk about taking the war to Palesti or taking it to Schweinfurt or to Regensburg or to Dresden, to Berlin, to Hamburg. That's where they're going. They don't talk about Rouen. They don't talk about, uh, you know, Paris, outskirts of Paris. I mean, they these guys, are, they're not talking about that. It's in the book. You can, They're not hiding it, but it's not, it's not played up. Uh, and I'd say the book in the official histories, but it's not played up anywhere. You know, it's not. They're not touting their successes. We provided great support to the ground forces coming ashore. You know, that, that's not there. I mean, the, 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 the bombing on June 6th is the largest bombing effort in history. I mean, there are 14,000 freaking Eric Asores that day. I mean, it's the largest thing ever. And, don't, and the Air Force doesn't talk about it. Very little. It, do, it doesn't fit the victory through air power. No, air. it doesn't. Victory through good support of our ground troops. They don't want that. That's not what they want. Now they want that. It's an interesting thing, by the way, is I've talked a lot of I got a lot of good Air Force friends, you know, people we mutually know. And they uh, they say there's still no doctrine on how to deal with um, bombing targets in friendly countries. They really don't have a, a, an answer to that. No, because, you know, destructive force is destructive force. Yes. You know, there's <laughs> no escaping it. You know, and I, I'm triggered again by you know, talking about other narratives. You know, the Germans. For their German historians, for their to their credit, you know, people like Stig Forster and all, they've done a really good job over the last couple of years, last decade yeah, or so. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, tabulating 
the outcomes of all of the attacks on German cities from the year. Yeah. They don't talk about France either. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's the French are just so, and and, and the French, there aren't many books in French on it, which is interesting. In fact, one of the best, uh, best books in French are done by an Englishman. You know, it's that kind of thing. There aren't a lot of, you know, Andy Knapp. There are not um, a lot of books on, on this in French. Uh, they're starting to show up there. Lately, they're starting to show up. And there's been good research, good research at the local level. Um, and I say there are not a lot of books. I'm talking more popular books. The local level researchers at, the, at these universities have done some really good work. And that's the other thing when you're doing sources. you got to go local. you got to get into the town. you got to go to the local, the local uh, travel office, the local library, the local bookstore. There you'll find the, these locally produced books by you know the regional historians that have walked every stra- every monument every bunker every town and they are invaluable and you just gotta you gotta go over there with a big big suitcase and buy them and bring them back because they're not on Amazon.France or anywhere else you gotta go get them they're really and the universities have done great work I mean the university uh, uh, in uh, in uh, in St Lo has just done magnificent amount of work on on uh, this kind of stuff. Why do you think it's taken them so long? I mean, is it because of just, you know, the, the coming to grips with it, the lack of interest, or is it, you know, government obstruction for so long that has kept this story tamped down? Yeah. I I think it's just the the generation, the generation, and it's a long generation because you're really talking about the children who live through it too. So not just not the adults. So it's really a double generation. They just didn't want to deal with it. They just, they wanted to get on. The war's over. Put it behind them. Uh, they, they, and they, it takes, you know, it takes, they got enough problems living with the guy down the street, uh, you know, with the policeman down the street who's the guy that arrested them, you know, that kind of thing. It's got, they got, they got a lot of issues. The generation now coming out, uh, the, the people now who are in their 20s and 30s, they're fascinated by it. They're fascinated by it. Uh, I actually gave a talk in, in a couple of years ago in, in Le Havre. Uh, to the town hall. I mean, it's actually in the town speaking. Me and a couple of guys, and I'm using my Franglish. I don't call it good French with my interpreter next to me um, to clarify my words I mispronounce. But um, one lady stood up and said, "What do Americans think about this, these bombings? About these bombings?" And I had to tell her, "Man, Americans don't know about it. They simply don't know we, we did it." Now, if you read the New York Times. Any day we're during World War II. I mean, you can't digest that. That is, these planes go. It's a massive array of reports from around the world on emissions. Though the reports on bombing in Europe are written by public affairs officers for the Eighth, the Ninth, and Fifteenth Air Force, which is kind of which is kind of interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and then and the newspapers just reprint them. So nobody really knows in America about this. This is why it's uh, this is why I think it was a timely topic. Well, you know, bring it, bring it to close our discussion about the book. Yeah. You know, what lessons should be retained from it that will inform future conduct? I mean, you've mentioned, you know, we don't really have an air doctrine now yeah. when it comes to war against civilians. Is France an unfortunate outlier or does it have more to teach us even now, you know, 75 years later? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm most sensitive to about this topic is you have to visit the other. You know, when I was in um, grad school, the, t- the professors would keep talking, talking about we have to consider the other. I never quite figured out 
what they were talking about, you know, being a knuckle-dragging knuckle-dragging military historian. I don't know what you're talking about. But yes, you've got to you've got to consider the other. So if you're writing if you're writing about a topic, you really need to get into the other participant's shoes. And I think one problem uh we have and is and from a, as a historical point of view is we're too quick to jump on uh, the sources that we can read, the American sources, the English sources, stuff that's come in translation. I really think you really gotta you got to get in touch with the other side of the story, and I don't think we do that well in, in any anywhere. I th- I've just touched the surface. I think you really get what it's like to be on that other side. And I think that's to me the big lesson for writing this is how much I learned from reading the seeing the American report or British report in one hand, and then having the French police report or the French testimony in the other hand, and comparing the two stories. And it was to me it was just like a you know massive eye opener of my gosh, you know, we have we really haven't captured this. And that to me is not is 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 really kind of think it all through and all from all the different angles. Well, at this point in our interviews, you know, we have a pair of final questions for our guests um, that looks forward from the book we're talking about now. Uh, Steve, first, what do you what do you what is your next project going to be? What are you looking for? I am writing a uh, an interesting study. I went back to my seventh corps roots and was going to write about uh, the seventh corps in Normandy, and I started looking at a guy, the chief of staff for the seventh corps, a guy named Richard G. McKee. Um, there's nothing about this guy that he is the guy that makes Joe Collins looks good, look good in Normandy and all the way <laughs> into September. Yeah. So I actually end up, um, he becomes the, uh, he becomes the uh, commander of the eighth infantry regiment in September. So he does all this core chief of staff stuff. I mean, he gets every trains him, gets them ashore operation Cobra. The, I think the greatest operation U S army ever conducts at any time, any place. He's the, he's the chief synchronizer of that whole thing. Gets up there in September. He's up there on the, near Aachen. He just now goes take command of an infantry regiment, right? Every infantry officer's dream. The 8th Infantry Regiment, 4th Division in the Hurricane Forest, three medals of honor in three weeks. His regiment, three medals of honor in three weeks. It's amazing. And nobody knows anything about this guy. Um, I'm in touch with his daughters, who's in late 80s, early 90s. They've given me his diary. They've given me some reports. So I'm writing a... I'm really looking right now at the Hurricane Forest, and I'm looking at a slice trying to – because there's never been a really comprehensive thing on this that takes it all the way down to, to my satisfaction. So I'm going from the decisions at the top down to the tip of the bayonet where uh, where an infantryman is running through the woods because of what he's been told to do. So that's, that's, that, that's one process, process project. And the other one I'm working on is I'm taking the bombing of the beaches – and I'm expanding that into a larger monograph. I think that story needs to be told in more detail. Second question, what are you reading now that may not necessarily be connected to what we're talking about that our listeners may wish to check out for themselves? Yeah, yeah I'm reading Julian Jackson's uh, biography of De Gaulle. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. What do you find? How do you find that? Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, a very complex person. And uh Jackson is a superb scholar and uh, the kind of guy that can uh, can pick, take him apart, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, the, the complexities of this guy are, and his uh, and how he operates is pretty interesting. So that, that's what I'm enjoying right now. 
That's yeah. great. That's great. Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, I can say this has been one of the most um, stirring interviews I've done in a while. Uh, uh, it, it speaks towards the book, believe me. And to our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Winterbute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>